to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Masha Gessen, a journalist and activist well-known for her writing about Russia and American politics. Gessen's previous work includes the 2012 book The Man Without a Face, which is a biography of Vladimir Putin. And her new book, out this month, is called The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia. Gessen now lives in America and over the past year has become well-known for her essays in the New York Review of Books and Elsewhere, which have sought to warn Americans about Donald Trump's threat to democratic norms and the rise of autocracy right here in America. Normally, I'd give a little more background on Masha Gessen's life and journalistic career, but we covered it in the interview. So without further ado, here's Masha. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Listen, I want to uh, normally I start with an introduction, kind of uh, giving some background about you and and your work, which which I which I did. But I uh, since you have a particularly interesting life story that most of my other boring guests do not have, I uh, I wanted to start a little bit just for you to talk about your background, where you were born and, and how you started to get into journalism for people who don't know. Wait, way to slam everyone you've had on the show, Isaac. Um, I know that was that was smooth, right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was born in Moscow uh, fifty years ago, and um, when I was fourteen, my parents and I and my little brother immigrated to the United States, uh, and I went to high school in Boston, and then moved to New York, and then as a correspondent, I went back to Moscow in the early nineties. Um, first as an American journalist and then sort of slowly went native again and uh, worked both as a Russian journalist and an American journalist and ran a bunch of magazines in Moscow over the course of about 20 years and then had to get out of there in a hurry um, about three and a half, four years ago. And why was that that you had to get out of there in a hurry? Um, I... I, I, I was a political journalist for a long time. I wrote a book about Putin. Uh, I made all kinds of trouble. I was uh, an organizer in the protests of 2011-2012. Uh, but my particular hell, so a lot of people who were that active were forced out in the country of the country in some way or another. Right? Somebody was threatened with criminal prosecution. Uh, somebody just... You know, received too many credible death threats. My particular case was that um, I was threatened with having my children taken away because I was raising them with a woman, still am. And uh, uh, especially my oldest son, who is adopted, um, they actually passed a law, in, at least in part, to enable this threat against me, banning you know, adoption of children into same-sex house- households. When you said that when you went back to do reporting and activism that you went native, I think was the phrase you used. Mm-hmm. What was it about Russia that appealed to you and that um, I imagine it was a it was a complicated thing being there. But but you used a that's an interesting phrase. What what when did the when, you know, year wise, when did that happen, broadly speaking? And, and what was it that that caused you to feel at home in Russia again? So the first time I went back was in March 91, um, which was, you know, just an incredibly exciting time. Um, it was, it was, the Soviet Union still existed. Gorbachev was still president. He was locked in a, a huge power struggle with Boris Yeltsin, the elected president of Russia within the Soviet Union. Uh, and people seem to be talking about all the important things, like, 
you know, what, um, how a country should be constituted, uh, what laws should regulate um, how people, you know, buy things and sell things, how people manufacture things, how property is constituted, um, what citizenship is, what is the proper relationship between the individual and the state, um, and so on. So it was it was a heady time, um, and you know that was an easy sell, I think, for any young journalist. I mean, there, uh, young American journalists were flocking to Eastern Europe to document all the revolutions and just bask in the sort of the sense of liberation, uh, and everything was very cheap. But the other thing was that I just felt at home, and you know, I've talked to um, a lot of people who have gone back to places they had left as teenagers or children. I think there's something particular about uh, emigration that you don't have a say in uh, and the kind of separation that, that results from them and then the kind of recognition that results from that. Um, it, it can make you very uncomfortable to feel that comfortable in a place. When you talk about kind of the exciting time in in uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia um, when the Soviet Union ended in 1991. The the 90s now in Russia, I think, uh, by a lot of people are seen as this very exciting, hopeful time. But also when we look at where Russia is today, a lot of people look back on that period as kind of um, where things began to go wrong, even if a lot of people, especially in the United States, didn't realize it at the time. When you look back on that period now, um, what do you what do you make of it? Um, you know, I I don't actually buy the sort of things began to go wrong in the sense of uh, the, the, the sort of the, the standard narrative is the country was plundered, it, it formed an oligarchy, uh, and and that was and, and and Russians quickly realized that that capitalism was was terrible and you know violent crime rose. Uh, that's not terribly accurate, right? Um, most Russians actually were living much better by the end of the 1990s than by the beginning of the 1990s uh, by sort of what we call objective measure, right? I mean, most Russians uh, were no longer confronting food shortages. Most Russians, uh, all Russian households acquired a new washing machine, which is like an amazing thing. If you've never had a washing machine or never had an automatic one, it changes your life. Um, there were a lot of other changes. You know, a lot more people had telephones, a lot more people had electricity, Many people had the opportunity to travel abroad and took advantage of it. But therein lies part of the problem. When people traveled abroad and um, saw that even poor countries, like uh, poor European countries like Spain or Turkey, even the not wealthy people there lived so much better than people who had considered themselves um, pretty well off in the Soviet Union, there was a real blow to people's sense of dignity. Uh, the other thing that happened was that uh, the Soviet class structure didn't really collapse. People who had been privileged in the Soviet period, by and large, continued to be privileged. But what collapsed were the divisions between, uh, between classes that made people invisible to one another. Right. Uh, so members of the Central Committee used to have their own buildings, their own dachas behind tall fences, their own sanatoriums. Their children went to separate schools and they got their food at closed distribution centers uh, that were you know, behind unmarked doors in the city. Uh, 
a lot of those walls sort of disappeared or, or developed, uh, you know, windows in them. And most important, the distribution centers closed and people started buying food in supermarkets. So other people who couldn't afford the food in the, the fancy food in the supermarkets were walking by those supermarkets and seeing the food in the windows that they couldn't afford. And so the understanding of, uh, of you know, shocking inequality that was actually inherited from Soviet society and was only exacerbated in the 1990s, plus the understanding of just how poor people were, plus a loss of uh, vision of the future because things became so uncertain. All of that together made the 90s, for a lot of people, uh, you know, a time of just deep psychological misery, resentment, you know, envy, um, a feeling of having been both clobbered and cheated. And what is your sense of how, I mean, we're going to get a little bit into, into what your book talks about, but what is your sense of how those psychological wounds uh, played a role in, in the rise of Putin and how he either kind of exploited that or, or was a product of it? I think it was actually both. That's a, I mean, that's a very insightful way, way to ask the question because I think Putin shared a lot of that resentment. He shared a lot of the nostalgia for an imaginary past in which um, he felt a kind of certainty uh, and and had a clear vision for his own future, you know, in his case as, as a KGB agent. Um, and so he was able to effortlessly tap into that longing uh, among so many Russians to return to an imaginary time of certainty and security. So then let's let's move a little bit directly to your book and to Putin in the you know the modern era, the last 17 years here in Russia, which is your book, which I mentioned in the intro, is called The Future's History, How Totalitarianism Conquered Russia. I, I want to talk a little bit about the title because I think most people think of totalitarianism. They think of uh, 1984 or North Korea or something like that. Um, why is totalitarianism the word that you chose to use in your title? I mean, you, you talk about the background of the term in your book a little bit, but but why is it appropriate for, for Russia? Right. So actually, the, the, the subtitle is, I like conquered, but, but uh, the subtitle is how totalitarianism reclaimed Russia. And the reclaimed is important here because uh, what I think happened in Russia is that uh, Putin has built a mafia state, right? Um, there, there are different terms that have been applied to his regime. You know, some people have used kleptocracy. Some people have called it an illiberal democracy. Uh, but I think the term that is that 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 has sort of the best theoretical basis uh, and and fits it best is the term mafia state, and it's uh, it, it it was pioneered by a Hungarian political scientist named Balin Magyar, who talks about uh, this kind of regime that has a patriarch at the center of it that. Uh, uh, the patriarch resides over presides over a clan to which he distributes money and power, and it instrumentalizes you know ideology and violence to the extent that it needs to in order to keep power and continue to plunder the country. The thing is, though, that uh, that mafia regime exists not in a vacuum, but it exists on the ruins of a totalitarian society, and so as Putin felt that his power was endangered uh, after the popular protests of 2011-2012, and he began his crackdown. The, uh, the signals that that crackdown sent out were interpreted by Russian society in sort of totalitarian ways, right? The mechanisms that kicked back in were mechanisms inherited from totalitarian society. So these were mechanisms of sort of uh, horizontal enforcement where people 
for example, will raid a neighborhood bookstore to see of their own volition, right? To see if it has inappropriate books in it, uh, in a country in which there's really technically no censorship, right? But uh, but they institute a kind of ground level uh, or grassroots censorship. But this is not a grassroots movement. It's actually a reaction to signals that they get from the Kremlin, right? So that's. Um, that's one way in which I think totalitarianism is really important to what is happening to Russia now. But but the other thing is that you know the definition of totalitarianism has um, gradually uh, developed, and different scholars have added or subtract subtracted um, various uh, tra- totali- traits to their definition of, of totalitarianism. Sort of in the in the, in the um, one of the classic definitions is actually the dichotomy between authoritarianism and totalitarianism, right? Authoritarianism is a regime in which uh, that is profoundly apolitical. Nothing is political. People are basically encouraged to stay home and not get in the way of uh, the ruler or a group of rulers who are plundering the country. And I think that that described Putin's regime very well up until 2012, up until the crackdown. A totalitarian regime is profoundly political. Everything becomes political. Uh, private life disappears as such because even private action becomes political. And people are basically urged to be not staying at home and not getting in the way, but be out in the squares demonstrating um, their support for the mission of their country. Uh, that's the kind of regime that Russia has turned into. It's a highly mobilized country. It's uh, it's It's... It's a country in which everything has become political. It's expansive, right? And that's why it's fighting wars in Ukraine and Syria, not for any you know economic objectives um, that a lot of commentators have tried to figure out what it is that they're pursuing. They're not pursuing, you know, uh, uh, sort of rational interests of that uh, of that order. What they're pursuing is the sense of constant movement, the sense of expansion that is essential to totalitarianism. There's a, there's a very interesting character in the book uh, named uh, Alexander Dugan. And I was wondering if you, could, if you could talk a little bit about who he is and how he, um, how he explains uh, stuff about Putin's Russia. Right. So Alexander Dugan is, I guess I'd have to call him a philosopher. Uh, he, um, uh, he he he's self-educated. He in the 1980s he was a young man who was trying to get hold of philosophy books, which was very difficult. Got hold of uh, being in time by Martin Heidegger and on microfilm, rigged up a children's film projector to uh, to project it onto his desktop, and I think that must mean that he had read it backwards, um, and um, and was transformed. And in the 90s made. Um, Alliances very quickly with the Western New Right, uh, the Western European New Right, um, and has a, a, has written a bunch of books and has emerged as a kind of Putin whisperer, uh, as he himself says, uh, his um, influence, uh, his power is negligible, but his uh, but his influence is immeasurable. Certainly. Uh, when Putin was sort of uh, grasping, uh, groping for an ideology, he employed a lot of concepts that originated with Alexander Dugin. And for a while, it looked like Dugin was kind of a Putin whisperer. But the idea of this expansive Russia, the idea of the Russian world, of a 
civilization based on traditional values that Russia is at the heart of, and uh, with uh, the idea that Russia is the only country that can possibly protect traditional values in the world. That all comes from Dugin. I mean, the, one of the weird things about having uh, just written this book just as Trump was getting elected was that uh, Steve Bannon uh, reads is shaped by a lot of the same thinkers that Dugin is shaped by. You know, they both uh, read uh, Julius Evola and um, and Rene Gagnon. Uh, Dugin actually wrote a book on Gignon. He um, Dugin is obsessed with this idea of tradition with a capital T, which apparently is something that uh, that Steve Bannon is also obsessed with. It's a charming story. Um, th- those two. Let me ask you. I mean, one thing when I talk to people who have spent time in Russia or, or Russian um, and have looked at the Putin regime, one one thing that they often say is that you know, you people in the West, you think Putin is this you know grand chess master, and he's actually not as competent and well organized, and not everything is part of some secret plan. Do, I'm wondering if you think that that is correct, and also if that at all you think changes the way you think about because I, I think we think of totalitarian regimes as being um, organized with, you know, single minded goals and and, you know, methods for for accomplishing them. But but some people seem to think that that's actually not quite the right description of Putin. Well, actually, I think that there's a significant difference between establishing a totalitarian regime and running a totalitarian society. Right. Uh, when totalitarian regimes are uh, are established, they are, they at least have the illusion of the single-minded purpose. Right. Um, but once they uh, once they establish the state terror that's necessary for uh, for a totalitarian regime, they tend to flail. And you know, if you read um, uh, even if you read about Stalin, right? I mean, there was uh, there it was a mess. It, uh, as much as he tried to um, to project the image of somebody who was in control of everything, uh, every single thing in the country, and certainly by the time Soviet society had aged and entered what we call the stagnation period, uh, it was a pretty convoluted and just shockingly incompetent uh, kind of state apparatus that was that was fragmented and that. Um, and that had a lot of different uh, people pursuing their own interests, and uh, and and that had no clear direction, and certainly uh, you know, had highly problematic command centers. So I think that Putin's um, the state that Putin has built is not that dissimilar from from the old Soviet Union. Um, I think that it would be more intellectually honest to say that Russia, as it is run today is vastly different from an imaginary, you know, ideal model of totalitarianism. But that's what models are like. They're they're different from reality. One concept that you talk a lot about in the book is uh, I don't want to mispronounce, but Homo Sovieticus. Um, do you wanna do you wanna just say briefly what what um, what what the idea behind that is? Um, so you know the explicit project of the uh, of the Soviet uh, of the Bolshevik Revolution as actually uh, is the case with every totalitarian society is to create a new kind of man and this was going to be the perfect man a man who lived in perfect harmony with his society everything was 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 just perfectly organized um, but 
In the late 1980s, a great Soviet sociologist named Yuri Levada decided to test a hypothesis one he, once he got the chance to actually do some sociology in his country. Um, he had this hypothesis that the Soviet Union had indeed created a new kind of man, uh, not necessarily perfect, but very much shaped by the experience of Stalinist terror. And his hypothesis was that since it had by that, by that time been 30 years since terror ended, Homo Sovieticus, that, that person characterized by doublethink uh, and by his very strong identification with the state, um, that person was, had to be dying off, right? And that Soviet institutions which rested on Homo Sovieticus had to crumble once, that, once Homo Sovieticus died out. And so he conducted the survey in 1989. It was this great big survey, the first real study of, 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 of Soviet people. And they concluded that, yes, Homo Sovieticus was on its way out. And it seemed that they correctly predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, which came two years later. The problem was uh, they went back uh, to the survey in 1994, did the survey in Russia, and came back with pretty dif- uh, pretty uh, disturbing results that suggested that Homo Sovieticus hadn't quite gone away and maybe wasn't as generationally bound as they thought. And then when they did the survey again in 1999, they came to the conclusion that, um, in fact, Homo Sovieticus was not only uh, surviving, but also reproducing. And they actually predicted as early as 1999 that there was a possibility of totalitarian revenge. So let me ask you, I mean, one critique of this idea is that it makes it sound too much as like that, you know, Russians are inherently ill-equipped for democracy. You know, there have been critiques... um, Going back all the way, I guess, to Marx, if not before, saying from Marx, I'm saying um, mm-hmm. that essentially, you know, Russia was not uh, not, you know, the the Russian peasants weren't fit for revolution. And then after World War Two, there were all these theories from the British government and elsewhere saying, you know, uh, the Russians aren't fit for democracy and all these things. And um, so the critique of that idea is that it, it makes it sound that it's sort of too inherent that, you know, people can't change and so on. I mean, wh- what's your what's your take about that critique of the, the whole idea of so- Homo Sovieticus? Actually, I think you're, you're a little bit sort of lumping together a couple of very different ideas, right? Marx's idea was that uh, peasants weren't ripe for revolution because you, you could only have revolution once a society had been industrialized. Um, Right. So uh, so he was actually talking about the situation, right, the circumstances, uh, whereas this other idea and, and that, you know, I think I think that he had a point. Um, I think the other idea that Russians are, you know, there is an inherent national character and Russians are perhaps genetically not suited for democracy, I think is just nutty and as, as nutty as any, you know, sort of um, national character essentialist idea. Uh so I guess what I'm proposing is is uh, is a little bit closer to uh, to, to the Marxian ideal, though just on a, on a different topic, which is that uh, people are shaped by their experiences. People develop survival skills that are necessary uh, for their situation. Um, we know that if you know if you if you take a woman who has been trafficked out of an abusive situation, you put her pimp in jail, and you say to her go live a normal life, it's highly unlikely that she's going to be able to do that because her skills have developed to allow her to survive in a uh, in an insane situation of constant terror, right? 
and so she is psychologically fragmented uh and and but but she is and she and she's at one uh, on the one hand skilled at surviving on the other hand entirely unskilled in in some key ways such as for example planning her future right um I think the same thing can be said of a society. I mean, you can't expect a society that has been subjected to terror for decades to suddenly sort of shake that experience off and develop an entirely new set of skills and and a new kind of baseline trust and go on and live as a happy democracy, right? Uh, and I think that's 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 what's ha- what's happened to Russia. Russia has reverted back to a situation that in some ways resembles terror in the absence of actual state terror, right? Because that's uh, sort of Russian society's survival skills are best suited to that kind of situation. When you look at the American relationship with Russia and the relationship among most European countries uh, to Russia right now, they're um despite despite the current president they're they're at a pretty low ebb and i was wondering Never been you know, worse, given actually. The, yeah well yeah uh i mean the cold war wasn't great but um i guess my question would be what do you think were we the united states are are doing right and wrong about the way we're approaching putin and what is your research for this book and your writing of this book Make you and and just your your sense of where Russia is today make you think about the way uh, the West, to use a loaded term, should uh, should deal with deal with Russia. Right. So um, I actually want to 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 put a fine point on on what I just said about relations never having been worse. Um, during the Cold War, uh, there was I think such great fear of uh, of nuclear war um, that I think we're in a for most of the Cold War, in a more stable uh, and more secure situation than we're now. I mean, right now, you know, uh, Russia has expelled 750 uh, U.S. diplomats. Uh, U.S. embassies and consulates in Russia have had to stop issuing visas to Soviet, to, to Russian citizens because they no, they no longer have the human power. Trump has suggested shutting down the Russian consulate in San Francisco. I mean, we're like a step away from uh, a full-on crisis of just of, of of severing diplomatic relations, and he's only been president for for nine months. Um, so, and you know, there are two presidents who are constantly involved in various kinds of of, of saber rattling. Putin likes to remind the world every couple of months that Russia has n- uh, nuclear arms, and Trump has asked uh, why we don't use nuclear arms. So, uh, so I think things are are really, really bad. Um, now, that doesn't answer your question. Uh, I mean, one good idea would be not to elect a president like Trump. But, um, uh, but on a if more... only you'd suggested that a year ago, <laughs> really could have. Actually, uh, I know I I I I, I should have taken a break from writing the book to warn people. But, um, um, but no, uh, I think that uh, I don't like the question, right? Because the question suggests that there is something strategic that that Western countries could be doing that would somehow uh, change Putin's behavior. And I don't think that's true. Right? Um, Putin is intractable. Uh, Putin is interested in maintaining power and maintaining his wealth. And if that means that he has to, uh, to steer his country on uh, sort of the path of eternal war uh, and constant mobilization. That's exactly what he's going to be doing. 
And there is nothing that, uh, or not much, that the West can do to influence his behavior. I think that the uh, we need to uh, to develop a kind of moral politics, right? Uh, which is to say, you know, uh, you can't predict whether sanctions are going to have any influence on Putin. Most likely, they're not going to have any influence on Putin. But that doesn't mean that sanctions are wrong. Sanctions are right because it's wrong to do business with a dictator. It is wrong to sit down with him at the table as though he were an international leader like any other. Uh, and that's probably not going to influence Russia much, but at least it can uh, maintain, you know, some semblance of an understanding of what the West stands for, using your term. You've you've developed a bit of a side gig in addition to writing about Russia, writing about the Trump administration and uh, the autocratic tendencies of our president. I'd say it's my it's my main occupation now. Actually, it's probably not a side. Okay, gig. not a side gig. This book is a side gig. Um, <laughs> but uh, this book was my last job. Last job. Okay. Yeah. So you know where where do you think we are ten months in? Uh, are things better or worse than you uh, than you thought they would be when you started warning about um, the slide toward uh, autocratic tendencies or autocracy um, right after the election? I guess. I think they're 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 kind of as bad as I. Th- thought they would be. I, I think that uh, the one thing that has surprised me is the the cacophony that, that Trump has created. Uh, I And, you know, I'm not used to this kind of cacophony. Putin creates a cacophony of his own, right? He just like drowns people in numbers and figures and facts, most of them made up, but still you just kind of feel like you're in this morass of, 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 of gray nothingness. Trump does the exact opposite. He just sends out, you know, uh, so many signals and gestures and bright shiny objects that uh, that it's it 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 has been impossible to follow what's going on. And you always have a sense, both I think as a journalist and just as an engaged citizen, that there's something hugely important happening that you're not noticing because some other hugely important thing is holding your attention, and that actually serves to create a sense of low level dread. That is characteristic of you know the kind of societies that that that, I, that I've been writing about, right? That just just makes people feel like they have no control over their own lives. Not to mention the fact that for weeks now we have been living with uh, the threat of nuclear war with North Korea, right? Which is something else that has created a kind of baseline dread that we have gotten used to sort of waking up and going to sleep with. And what do you think so the that's, effect of that that's is? that's worse than uh, than I expected. What uh, the effect of that is is to make f- people feel powerless, uh, and that it's an incredibly effective instrument of of building autocracy. So I, I don't I don't disagree with all that. Although I do think that when following the news on a day to day basis, my biggest lesson from the last ten months is that. People keep interpreting meaning and strategy to things things Trump is doing, which in hindsight or with more information seem like they were not part of any strategy. They were just, uh, you know, singular acts of weirdness and uh, awfulness and so on. Oh, so I agree, I, I agree I, with I, you. But, I, but you know, I, I, I don't think that strategy is a, is a characteristic of autocracy. Say more. I, I think that... Um, uh, because we read history books, 
we think that uh, you know autocracies develop linearly uh, in the pursuit of, of you know an autocratic project. I don't think that's true. I think that uh, that that humanity has stumbled into awful moments of history, uh, and this may well be one of those moments. And I think that Trump has an instinct for manipulating people and for making them feel powerless. And that's an instinct that that drives a lot of his actions. Uh, he also has an instinct for you know self-aggrandizing, uh, which happens to dovetail with uh, with that instinct. He, uh, he he has the habit of sort of advancing his brand by making a lot of loud gestures and and contra- and and contradictory things. Um, he doesn't need to be pursuing a grand strategy in order to be able to, in order to be consolidating a kind of psychological power. Last question for you, since this has been a bleak conversation, I wanted to end it on a slightly happier note, I hope, which is oh, you that... Might, you might need I, another guest for that, Isaac. I don't know. Okay. Well, uh, sadly, we don't have anybody in the in the green room, so I'm just going to have to ask you this, which is that I was watching The Americans the other day, half asleep. The credits were rolling on. I was about to turn off my computer, and there I see in the credits of the FX show The Americans, your name. Um, is that, in fact, you? That is, in fact, me. So what do you do on my, the Americans? This is my favorite gig, uh, and this is in fact a sideline, unlike writing about Trump. I um, I translate the Russian scenes for the Americans, and it's great fun. That sounds fantastic. Do you are you on set? Do you have you done any, any exciting stories about the Americans for people who haven't watched it? It's a phenomenal show, I should say. Um, it is. It is absolutely the best show in television. I'm not unfortunately on set. The job was supposed to involve being on set, but it turned out to be completely incompatible with the other stuff that I do. Yeah. All right. Well, I was hoping for some Carrie Russell stories, but I guess... Uh... <laughs> Your other guest. Yeah. Um, listen, Masha Gessen, thank you for being here. The book is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, and I should say it is available now. Masha, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling with help today from Spencer Silva. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. One more thing. If you're looking for more podcasts to help you stay in the know about the latest news and culture, check out The Gist, hosted by my friend Mike Pesca. You might like the September 19th interview with the journalist John Heschinger, who writes about scandal-prone college fraternities. Find The Gist at slate.com slash the gist or wherever you get your podcasts.